We're in Nehemiah chapter 3. Joel, in his introduction, reminded us of one of the questions from last week. What, what do you want? Uh, what do I want? I want somebody else to preach Nehemiah chapter 3 because it's like preaching from the phone book. Uh, it's a big long. You don't even know some of you what a phone book is. Children, a phone book was this thing that used to come every couple of years in the mail. This big chunky book that had everybody's address and phone number in it. Um, they stopped doing that a while ago. Because big men used to rip them up for fun on TV. Anyway, getting distracted. We are in a series called The Rebuilders. This is message number 11. And you know Amos 9.14 by now. I will bring my people Israel back from exile and they will rebuild. And what we have in Nehemiah 3 is a long list of names and people and occupations. And this is not thrilling reading. Uh, there is a temptation to leave it out. And a lot of books on Nehemiah leave it out. And some sermon series on Nehemiah leave it out. But there are a few wee nuggets in here. So we're going to go through it. Now there's, um, there's, there's, there's probably not what you'd call deep and profound new hidden truths. But there are things here that are important for those who want to rebuild. For those who want to see the church built, um, who want to see lives restored, there are just little things that we can pick out in this chapter as we go through. Um, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 5, just to give you a sort of a feel for what the chapter's like. I'm not reading the whole thing because it's, it's brutal. And I'm not doing what I did last week with Nehemiah's name, where we played Hebrew games to see what his name meant. If we were to do that with every name in this chapter... <laughs> We'll be here a long, long time. So let's read the first five verses. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshullam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs, and next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. You want me to stop? <laughs> That's tight going, isn't it? it? It's not riveting stuff. It's not wildly exciting. But Paul said all scripture is God-breathed, including this and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture. So that means there is something in here that is useful uh, for those purposes. It's God's Word. We're not going to skip it out. Neither are we going to attempt to go through it verse by verse. Just going to pick out a few things in the chapter and see how we can apply them to our theme of rebuilding. You've got a bunch of ordinary people in Nehemiah 3. 
And the first thing that we learn, I'm just going to get just snappy wee lessons as we go through here. The first thing that we, we learn is the fact that the chapter is in the Bible at all. That Nehemiah at some stage wrote this stuff down. A lot of people think what we've got in the book of Nehemiah is his journal entries. And then another scribe, possibly Ezra, brought the whole lot together. So Nehemiah chose at some stage to write this down. It was important enough for him to do that. And it was important enough for whoever compiled the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, the overall book, to include that under God's influence. They put it in because it is important to recognize the work that people do, to commend them, to encourage them, to, to know their names. He, he knows the names of the people that are rebuilding the walls. Remember Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple and then Ezra came up and rebuilt the people's identity using God's word. And now Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And he is able in chapter 3 to go around. He starts at this sheep gate that we're going to finish at. And he goes around the walls of Jerusalem. And he names all the different people at all the different points. And the contribution that they all made. Recognition is important. He valued what they did. And he recorded it in his book. Here's uh, the first sort of lesson. Leaders serve. When you read Nehemiah 3 verse 1, the first thing you meet is the high priest and other priests who go to work. (laughs) Who don't just sit around reading nice books and thinking and speaking to people. They work. They're not afraid to get their hands dirty and get stuck in. And straight away they lead by example. They are not only leaders who, who sort of delegate tasks or give orders but they themselves get involved. They get stuck in and they do the work. And I know from talking to a few men uh, around this town that they respect church leaders who work, who also have a job. Now, please do not misunderstand that that there's a problem with church leaders who are full-time. There's not. But those guys just respect leaders who work a job as well, who do something else. It, It gets some points with them the high priest and the fellow priests go to work and when you read further on in verse 9 you've got a ruler of a district or a half district of Jerusalem and in verse 12 you've got another one so what you'll have over and over again throughout the chapter is leaders people of influence people who probably could argue oh I'll just stay at home I'm too important for this and they don't do that they get stuck in among the people and get on with the dirty work of building this wall I watched a wall being built last week. It was at Nigel's Caravan. And every morning, at, or every, well, it seemed like all the time, I walked up and down the Lee Stone Road and, and watched the progress of these two guys building one of those dry stone walls. It was amazing, actually. But I can tell you this, hard work. <laughs> hard, hard graft watching them, watching them work at that. These leaders weren't afraid of hard work, but they couldn't do it on their own. They realized that even though they were getting involved, they needed to have a group of people who would work in unity together. And as you read Nehemiah, if you're an underliner, and if you tackle reading Nehemiah 3 later on, underline every time you see that phrase. Because you see it over and over and over again. Next to him. It literally, I think, in Hebrew means at his hand. 
So you would have had one guy or one group or one family building one section of the wall. Next to him, there's another. Next to him, next to them. That, and picture it. Let your mind, you know, just be a drone for a minute or two over Jerusalem, over ancient Jerusalem. And the, the walls, the rubble of the, of the walls, and then all of these people starting to rebuild. And you can see them all working away in little groups, but beside them there's another group. And if you were working on your part of the wall, you probably knew the, the family or the group that were on your left really well. <clears throat> and you probably knew the family that were on your right really well. You might not have knew the guys on the other side of the city. But there was just this ongoing chain of community and unity around the wall. As we'll see as we look at some, at, at some of the individuals, they had all different skills and trades, all different backgrounds, but they worked together. There was one project, and the one project was, we're going to build this wall. And all of these different people stood. In fact, somebody suggested that the Hebrew also could suggest the term shoulder to shoulder around the wall. All working, but all working together. And I'm sure at times there was maybe a shout for someone, come over, and particularly heavy rock here. Can you come over and help me lift it? Or, or what, can I borrow your hammer? But there was that, that picture of all of these people, shoulder to shoulder, united in the one project. It reminds me of, of in Philippians 1, as Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he says in verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of, this is a beautiful phrase, your partnership in the gospel. Love that. Your partnership in the gospel. The word for par partnership is, is a Greek word that you might know for fellowship, koinonia. That sense of, of, again, these people all partnering, all of these different people in different cities, different locations, different backgrounds, different social status, but they are all together in the one project of furthering the gospel. And they're united, Paul writes again in, in Ephesians, in, at the start of Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3. Verse 3, I'll read first of all at the bottom of the screen. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And how do you do that? Back up to verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. All of those people working side by side on the wall, they had to get on. Whether they liked each other or not, they were united in the one project. They had to be humble. They had to be gentle. They had to be patient. They had to bear with one another. And if, if anything is going to be built of, of lasting importance in the kingdom of God, it has to be built by people working together in unity. Linda mentioned a week or two ago that the posture of a rebuilder is humility. Be completely humble. That will create unity among the rebuilders. The thing that will destroy unity is pride. So not only do we have unity, but we also in this group of people have diversity. They worked on one project, but they were all very different people. Now, I've already mentioned that we had priests and rulers, but as you read through the chapter and look at what some of these other people did, you've got a perfume maker in verse 8. If you wanted a wall built, would you call the perfume maker? You know, just, I better be careful. <laughs> just picturing somebody with soft hands that doesn't go outside much, but anyway. And then you have the goldsmith in verse 8 and also in verse 
31. You've got these, these people are different. They are united, and it's just again like the church in 1 Corinthians 12. They are united, one body, but many different parts, many different skills and different backgrounds coming together. And I love the fact that all of these people got involved. The perfume maker did not say, I am a perfume maker. I don't build walls. Get somebody else to do it. And the goldsmith did not say, I'm a goldsmith. I work with gold. I do not work with stone. Get someone else to do it. They all got involved. Regardless of what their normal area of expertise was, they got involved and they did their bit in the building of the wall. So don't be making excuses. Don't be saying things like, you know, this is what I do. This is my limited skill set and I won't do anything outside of that limited skill set. These guys were willing to, I'm sure the perfume maker had never lifted a rock in his life. But on this occasion, he was going to get involved and he was going to help with the building. There are no professionals on this building project. Another thing you will notice as you read through Nehemiah 3 is that there's one particular skill or trade that is strangely absent. There are no builders. <laughs> there's the dude that makes perfume and the goldsmith and the priests and the rulers and, and various types of people, but you don't read anywhere about, about Fred, who was a construction worker. He's not there. <laughs> There's, there's no one there who appears to be a professional, who can claim to be an expert. And it's the same, I think, in the kingdom of God. Professionalism, you know, there are times you want to develop expertise and you want to bring your gifting on to excellence and work on it. But no one can sit and say, I'm the professional here. I'm the one who knows this inside out and upside down. You will all do what I say. These people are all coming together and they're all getting involved in the work, even though none of them have previous experience in building. They're out of their comfort zone. And again, I think it's really, it's really easy in the church to just say, well, I don't normally do stuff like that, so I'm not going to do it. Whereas they got involved. In fact, there's a, there's a beautiful verse, if I just cheat here and go into Nehemiah 4 for a minute. In, in the message, it says, we kept at it. Verse 6 of Nehemiah chapter 4, we kept at it, repairing and rebuilding the wall. The whole wall was soon joined together and halfway to its intended height because the people had a heart for the work. That is more important than expertise. You can have experts who don't have a heart for the work and they will be no good to you. In fact, they'll probably be a thorn in your side. You can have people who have a heart for the work who are not experts, and they're brilliant. That's the key. One of the questions last week is, what has God put in your heart? And for all of these people that were on this wall, if you've got your bird's eye, drone's eye view of them all working away along the wall, they had a heart to work. I don't know how to build a wall, but I'm going to try. (laughs) Yeah? I don't know how to connect with a local community, but I'm going to try. I don't know how to to win over the hearts of disaffected youth, but I'm going to try. Yeah? These people just had the heart to give it a go. Now, whenever Nehemiah needed some expertise in the scriptures, he called Ezra. So there there is a time and a place. In in Nehemiah chapter 8, they want to read the scriptures, read the law to the people, and Nehemiah calls for Ezra. But all the expertise in the world is no good if a person doesn't have a heart to work. 
There's got to be that yearning, that desire, that willingness to do some really simple but really hard work. Yeah? Building a wall is... I'll show you a picture of the wall later. It's not rocket science. But it requires hard graft, effort. And these people had a heart to say, yeah, let's, let's do this. Unfortunately, there are some in Nehemiah 3 who refuse to work. In verse 5, we read about the men of Tekoa. Now, they worked, the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. These are the only people in the entire chapter that will not work. Bit of a black mark on it. Imagine if your name was recorded or, or the name of a, of a group that you're involved in and for all of time, that group is recorded as being the ones who didn't get involved, who didn't work. And it could be laziness, but apparently, according to, to some of the books that I've been reading, the, the issue is more pride than laziness. These guys think that to do the hard work of rebuilding the wall is beneath them. And that's why some of your translations of Nehemiah 3.5, like the ESV, will say, their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. I'm too good for this. I'm too important to do that. Yeah, Someone else can do that job because I have an important role. I'm an expert. I'm a professional. And I'm, I'm not going to lower myself to do that dirty hard work. And these guys have been remembered in God's word for all time for being the ones who wouldn't lower themselves to get involved. This is the opposite, again, of what Linda mentioned a couple of weeks ago. This is the opposite of humility. The posture of the, re- the rebuilder is humility. The posture of these guys is pride. And they build nothing. And when the wall's finished and they dedicate it and they celebrate it, these guys can't get involved. Another thing we learn is that you should build where you live. Build where you live. Verse 23 says, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs in front of their house. Next to them, Azariah, son of Maasiah, and the son of Ananiah made repairs beside his house. So there's that picture as well. Each person or lots of the people who are working on the wall are working on the part of the wall that is beside where they live. You need to build where you live. Don't leave your family out of your ministry. Don't leave your neighbors out of your ministry. Something that has happened for us lately that has taken an embarrassing long time to happen, but we're starting to get to know our neighbors just a little bit. Northern Ireland is a strange place. I don't know where you just, you can live near someone for so long and never really engage with them or hear any of their stories. And, and you know, Linda, I don't know what the phrase was that you used, but basically when you're so busy <laughs> running around doing stuff and you don't have time to actually hear your neighbor's stories and know what's going on in their lives, and even just being out on the road and walking a wee bit or being out in the front garden doing stuff and having the ability to take the headphones off and stop and talk to people as they walk past. And then within minutes, you're getting a prayer request about a sick child who we've been praying for on Tuesday nights. Yeah, build where you live. Build where you live. What, what section of the wall is your house facing? 
And in building where they lived, they also built quite a few of them with their families together. And there's a lovely little verse that will always, you know, the verses like this will always bring a smile to my face. In, uh, in verse 12, Shalom, who was a ruler of a half district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The help of his daughters. Skin, this lovely picture of the family working together. And just, you know, because I do have a bee in my bonnet about it at the minute, women are helping out. They're allowed to help. They're not told that their place is, is somewhere else and they shouldn't be helping with the hard work of building the wall. These daughters of Shalom are involved. <laughs> it's not like you go home and be quiet and, and iron your hat. You know, They are totally involved in the building project. They're not excluded because they're female. So build where you live. Also build where you don't live. When you read through Nehemiah 3, you will find lots of people who are not from Jerusalem. Some of them are obvious places like, like Jericho and Tekoa and Mizpah that you may have read about somewhere else in the Old Testament. Some others you might not have heard of, but they are outside the city walls. And yet these people have come to get involved in the project. And how many of you, I'm sure, pray for mission projects that you will never see? How many give to mission projects that you will never visit? Yeah. Build, don't just, you know, it's important to build where you do live, but it's also important to build where you don't live. To invest in things in prayer and in giving that have no sort of direct immediate benefit to you. And these guys would travel in every day. I'm not sure how far it was, but they would travel in to work on the wall, even though it wasn't right at their house. And, th- and as a church, we need to think, you know, we're very focused on our own town and that's good, but we also need to think on a, on a bigger scale. What are the things that we can get involved in and help with and give and donate to? And we do that every, maybe twice a year, start to, you know, give out to, to other organizations. What are the things that we can support that aren't where we live, that are in the bigger picture? Unfortunately, somebody has to sort out the dung gate. Do you remember the dung gate from last week? Yeah. The dung gate is where all the rubbish goes and it's really smelly and uh, nobody wants to work there, but it's part of the wall and someone is going to have to go and sort out the dung gate. Now, bless Malkaja, son of Rechab. He offered to repair the dung gate. Now, I cannot imagine that that's something he has wanted to do his whole life. When he was a child and he was asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? He probably did not say, I want to fix the dung gate or work at the dung gate, or have anything to do with the dung gate. He probably did not have a PhD in dung from the University of Babylon. This was not something he aspired to. On the job finder, putting in the search term dung, to see if there are any opportunities to work with dung. The dung gate had to be repaired. That's where all the rubbish was. You know, if you, if you haven't seen rubbish lately, just look across the road. All right. That's where all the rubbish was piled up in the city. It was smelly, and it was stinking. And Malkaja offered to do it. You know, sometimes the work genuinely is dirty work. Is dirty work. Daniel just left the room there, but I can remember one morning we, we rotted the drains, rotted the sewers. <laughs> I think he did it several times. Dirty work. Sometimes work in ministry, not just practical work, but sometimes you just have to really get your hands dirty. And you have to do something you don't want to do and engaged in something you don't want to get engaged with. And this dude, Malkaja, bless him, remembered for all time as the one who fixed the dung gate. And the irony of it is, his job was, 
uh, he was a ruler of a district, which meant he worked for the council. <laughs> so he, back there in the ancient world, you had, believe it or not, the council dealt with the rubbish. Imagine that, how times have changed nowadays. The rubbish just lies out in the streets. But back then, it was the council that dealt with the rubbish. Somebody has to sort out the dung gate. Another thing to learn from Nehemiah chapter 3 is that you should not retire. Now, obviously, you need to retire from your job and, and, and get a well-earned rest. But in the kingdom of God, don't retire. There's always more to do. In Nehemiah 3.5, you read about these men of Tekoa that I mentioned earlier. And they repaired a section of the wall. But then in verse 27, you read about the men of Tekoa repairing another section. Again, a little mindset that I think can quite easily seep into us in, in ministry, in kingdom work, in mission work, is a sense of, well, I've done my bit. So I'm now going to just put my feet up and not do anything more. Whereas these guys, and there's others, there's, there's at least two other groups of people in Nehemiah 3. And once they have finished their own section that was assigned to them, packed up their tools, moved somewhere else and started working there. They just kept on going. There's always more to do. There's no attitude of quitting, retiring or feeling that we've done our bit. Rebuilders need grace. This is interesting. This is one of the things that you're just never going to spot by reading it, but when you know a few books can, can help you out. In Ezra chapter 10, you might remember from when we sort of finished off Ezra, Ezra ends badly. Nehemiah is going to end badly again, just, just to give you a wee spoiler. Uh, Ezra ends badly because it ends with a big long list of men who had married non-Israelite women and drove Ezra mad because he had to try and fix this. And in Ezra 10, verse 31, again, a chapter of the Bible, you're not likely to be thrilled when you read it. But there is, a, in the middle of this list, it says, from the descendants of Harim, Eleazar, and Ishijah, whatever that is, and Malkijah. This is a different Malkijah. Now, I want you to note something here. Malkijah is listed in Ezra 10 as having married a non-Israelite woman. In other words, he'd messed up. And he was part of the problem in Ezra chapter 10 that Ezra had to fix. But look where we find him in Nehemiah 3. In verse 11, the same Malkijah, son of Harim, is building the wall. If you're going to get kingdom work done, if you're going to get a rebuilding project completed, it's going to involve people who you will need to give grace to. You'll need to give them a second chance. It would have been very easy for Nehemiah and others to say, listen, mate, I've read about you. I know you were one of the people who messed up by marrying foreign women. And I know you caused Ezra an awful headache and you're not going to help build my wall. But no, he is allowed to rebuild the wall. He is given grace. He is given a second chance in life. Your rebuilders frequently will not be squeaky clean super Christians who have never messed up. Some of the best people will be the people who have messed up. They know they've messed up and they want to get involved and get their hands dirty and work. And it's up to you, it's up to me, it's up to others to give them a second chance. Not to just say you did this and therefore you can't. But to have grace and to allow people to change instead of holding their past failings in front of them. Another thing that rebuilders have in, uh, in Nehemiah 3 and Nehemiah overall is a legacy that lasts. In February 2007, this was discovered. 
uh, as they were, as archaeologists were excavating a tower in Jerusalem, they found a 30 metre section of Nehemiah's wall, which before that had not been discovered or had not been uncovered during this archaeological dig. That's his wall. It's rough looking, isn't it? I told you they weren't experts. <laughs> it's, it's definitely a, a bit coarse, but sure, it's wide at the bottom and it's narrow at the top, and that means it'll stay up, hopefully. Hundreds, thousands of years later, it's still there. Rebuilders will build something that will outlast them. They will leave a legacy. And one of the things about a chapter like this and a photograph like that is that our God is a God of history. He's not just an idea. Somebody didn't just sort of have too much cheese and wine some night and dream up the Christian faith. Our God is a God of history. These are real people in Nehemiah chapter 3. That is a real wall. And, and archaeologists have found artifacts all around the wall that they have dated back to the time of the exile and the return from exile. God is a God of history, not a God of the imagination. And the reward that these guys had was not a financial reward or, or just the fact that they got their names written down in God's book. The reward was that they left a legacy that outlived them. And generations after them enjoyed the safety of the wall. Do we do that? Are we building something that will outlast us? Are we just building something that serves us for our lifetime? Because these guys built something that lasted. One of the things that I mentioned at Dad's funeral earlier this year was about how his handiwork is in many houses, his own house, and the houses of neighbors across the road, and the houses of family members all over the place, and my house, and my brother's house. All these things that you can look at and say, Dad did that. And, and one, of the, one of the nicest actually is the, the church at the Dobbin where he is buried, you know, 100 yards or so from the grave, there's the rectory and the pillars of the rectory he built. <laughs> A legacy that lasts. What, what do we do for people that will still be there long after us? And in terms of, of thinking of strategy and of, of how we want to do things and what, what we want to achieve, do we think about the future and future generations and what will be passed on to them and what they will carry? Or do we just aim to do something for ourselves? Revelation 14 verse 13 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. As with much of Revelation, a tricky enough verse to sort of fully understand, but from other translations, it appears to say about how these, these laborers, these Christians, these people who have died in the Lord, they have left a legacy. Their, their deeds and their works and the things that they did will not be forgotten. And as I finish off this tricky little chapter, hopefully there's something in there that, prompts you or gets you thinking. I left you with three questions last week. You know, what, are, what are the wounds of society? What has God put in your heart to do? And what do you want? And I, and I know from feedback that, that a few of you have been thinking about them, which is great. Here's another question for this week. And this is a bit stingy, you know. As I was thinking about this, 
I thought, what if Nehemiah was a table? And he was going home to write his journal and to write the equivalent of Nehemiah chapter 3, but to write it for table. And the question came to mind, what would he write about me? So as you read Nehemiah 3, you just see all these little verses where it's just the name of a guy or his family and what part of the wall they rebuilt. And if he was to do that for us, something you could maybe think about over your coffee this afternoon, what would he write about me? You might even want to write it down yourself in in your journal if you have one. What do you think he would say? Such and such rebuilt the blank. You know, this person used their skills to do that. This person used their giftings to do that. This person worked really hard here. Hopefully not these nobles who wouldn't put their shoulders to the work. (laughs) There's a good work ethic here. As as Joel was dragging me up the mountain yesterday, uh, he was remarking about, about what the kitchen is like after a meal. You know, everybody in cleaning up. You can hardly get in. You sort of, you're, you're, Noble heart is rising up and you want to get to the sink and get tore in, but you can't because there's about five other people there. There is a good work ethic here, but I want you to really ponder that. Just even read half of the chapter and think, if he was writing a paragraph about me, what would he write? Am I leaving a legacy that lasts? Do I work hard? Do I stand side by side in unity with others? Or do I think that I'm an expert? I hate the title pastor. I love the office, the role, the, you know, the, the work of a pastor, but I don't like the title. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't greet somebody and say, hi, I'm Pastor David. I say, hi, I'm David. <laughs> You're very welcome. As soon as we turn something into a title, we then sort of subconsciously tell people, I'm an expert, this is my area of expertise, and there's a, di- there's a distance between you and me. Yeah? Do we stand side by side with others, shoulder to shoulder, not up above, shoulder to shoulder, at each other's hand, doing work, helping each other, not carrying some attitude of expertise? Do we give fellow rebuilders a second chance? I think that's a really challenging one. Of all of the wee nuggets as I've gone through that chapter, that's, that's one of the ones that struck me about that guy who messed up, but they gave him a second chance. And he got his name. His name had been written down in Ezra as, as one of the guys who messed up. And now his name is written in Nehemiah as one of the guys who built the wall. Do we give people a second chance? Or do we, they're past failures because we all have them. We all have them. From before we walked with Jesus and since we walked with Jesus, we've all messed up. We've all got things wrong. We've all called things badly. Do we have the grace to give one another a second chance to keep on building? Just before we sing, let me go back to the sheep gate. Sheep gate. Think about it now. The sheep gate. What do you think went through the sheep gate? (laughs) Well, (laughs) <laughs> You're mischievous. <clears throat> sheep possibly went through the sheep gate. This is the gate that faced the temple. And when you read Nehemiah's record of the wall being rebuilt, this is the first one he mentions. This is where they started. Because the, the most important thing was to give people safe access to the temple. 
because the most important thing is the presence of God. So they start off there, the priests, rebuilding the sheep gate. And the sheep gate, sheep gate, the gate of the sheep, the sheep gate. The sheep gate would have been the gate that sheep would have been brought through into the temple for sacrifice, for sin, to get right with God and to be able to come into his presence. Worship is important. Sacrifice is important. Corporate worship is, is important enough for Nehemiah to make this the most important gate in his wall, the one that he's going to work at first. It's the sheep gate. And I wonder when Jesus said, I am the gate for the sheep, did he have this in mind? I'm the one who allows the sheep to come into the temple, who allows the people to come to the presence, who provides the atonement for sin. Are we going to sing that song again? Yeah? Lovely words in that song about the victory of the cross, about Jesus and what he did. Jesus said, I am the gate for the sheep. I'm the sheep gate. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the one that you pass through to come into the safe presence of God in the temple. I'm the sacrifice. Let's bear that in mind just as we, as we come to sing.